Welcome to The Dynamist, a podcast by Lincoln Network. I'm Evan Schwarztrauber. There are a few debates in tech policy that get as heated and contentious as the debate over what content or quote-unquote digital speech is allowed on the internet. The term you may see in a news story or a job posting at a big tech company is content moderation. Proponents of more moderation say it's really just about taking down speech that creates real-world harm. Think, you know, targeted harassment or racist or hate speech. Critics say the term content moderation, however, is little more than a euphemism for censorship. For the purposes of today's discussion, let's just say content moderation is the process by which tech companies decide what to take down and what to leave up. Now, Congress has been debating this topic for years, but despite a slew of bills introduced and plenty of discussion among legislators, there's been little to no concrete action on the matter. Republicans and Democrats, surprise, surprise, they disagree on what to do. Republicans generally believe that big tech companies take too much content down, particularly concerning conservative speakers. Democrats generally believe they leave too much content up. Think, you know, misinformation and disinformation and, you know, content about COVID that they believe is wrong and could lead to health outcomes in the real world that are harmful. So they disagree on what to do about it. And of course, that means that Congress is pretty much deadlocked. So states have begun to fill the void. In September of 2021, Texas passed a law making it illegal for social media platforms to ban users based on their political viewpoints. Now, the courts have gone back and forth on this. There have been a bunch of developments, but the most recent development is that in mid-September of 2022, about a year after that bill was signed into law, the Fifth Circuit Court rejected a First Amendment challenge to the Texas law. This sets the stage for a showdown at the Supreme Court between Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton and two trade associations that represent large tech companies, NetChoice and CCIA. So what does this mean for social media and the future of online speech? Joining me to discuss this is Brendan Carr, Commissioner at the Federal Communications Commission, better known as the freaking FCC for you Family Guy fans, he is the senior Republican commissioner at the agency. Boss, thanks for joining. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Well, full disclosure, I used to work for Commissioner Carr here. So if I'm unusually harsh and just generally have a negative <laughs> tone and demeanor throughout the episode, know that that's not normally how I am. But in his presence, that is uh, sometimes an issue. Exactly right. No, great to great to be with you. Really loved it when you uh, worked with me, and uh, hopefully, you know, you won't take out any frustrations on me from the time that we worked together here. Well, I was I was very glad that you accepted my invitation to join. Uh, funny enough, I did host a podcast at the FCC that you came up with the name, and I never had you as a guest. That's I, I assume you don't harbor any ill will over this. That's right. More than seven dirty words. It was a great name for a podcast, and hopefully, it can be revived at some point. Yeah. Well, I mean, you did miss out on dozens of listeners, my robust audience of telecom lawyers and people who read Communications Daily and other um, you know, exciting trade press. But hopefully uh, this show will reach a larger audience, depending on your performance here today, of course. Traditionally, social media hasn't been the purview of the agency you work at, the FCC. But you've been quite outspoken in your concerns about content moderation. You're not shy about sharing it on Twitter, of course. You've talked about censorship, the practices of big tech platforms. What motivated you to join this fray? Well, as you pointed out, I've been very hesitant to get into the debate about social media and big tech and content moderation. Look, I, I think it is one of the most consequential debates that we have right now in tech policy. It's one that I've been involved in for a couple of years now. Historically, as you pointed out, the FCC hasn't had a direct regulatory role here. At the same time, the famed Section 230 is actually Section 230 in the Communications Act, which the FCC administers. So I do think the FCC has a direct role to play when it comes to Section 230, which a lot of tech platforms lean on as a basis for their content moderation. I think over time, 
courts have added immunities and special protections that are found absolutely nowhere in the statute. So I was a, a big believer that we at the FCC should move forward. I think we still should move forward and provide some clarity on it. But I think this is an, an important issue for me as a conservative. I think conservatives for, for years were really, really good at identifying harms to individual liberty that came from the government. And that's still a very important area of focus for us. But I think re- Republicans and conservatives were slow to see the threat to individual liberty that is presented by the consolidation of power in large corporations. And I think you see that nowhere more clearly than when it comes to big tech and the control they have over the free flow of information. I mean, big tech now controls more speech than any institution in history. And I think it's something that we need to confront as individuals. And I think there's a role for the government here as well. Well, let's talk about Twitter briefly, because Twitter doesn't necessarily fit the market cap definition of big tech maybe more medium tech, but in terms of the influence over political discourse, the fact that so many elites in society, politicians, billionaires, journalists are on the platform, it certainly gets a lot of attention. And at the time that we're recording this, reports are coming out that the back and forth between Elon Musk and Twitter over his purchase, it looks like it's going to go through and that he's going to pay the, uh, I guess what he believes now is an overpriced uh, shares for the company. But you've seen a lot of folks who are skeptical of government intervention here. You know, you're more like doctrinaire, free market, libertarian types. They look at this and they say, great, Elon Musk is coming in. He's going to buy Twitter. He's clearly got a more pro-free speech outlook on the platform. One of the reasons he's buying it is that he was frustrated with the content moderation practices, what he believes is too much censorship for, for fans of former President Trump. His return to the platform could be imminent after his you know permanent ban a couple of years ago. Do you not agree with them that this is just evidence that you know the market will sort this out, that you know folks who believe in free speech will, will find a way? Yeah, we'll see if at the end of the day, Elon Musk does fully consummate the deal to purchase Twitter. It's been a bit more of a saga than I think we saw with Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez. It's been more <laughs> back and forth with whether it's, you know, they're actually didn't get the deal done here. In that case, it was a happy outcome. I think that's right, depending <laughs> on which side of that you're on. <laughs> yeah. But this is an interesting one. I, I, I think- I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that when Elon Musk does, in fact, complete this purchase, if he does, that he bends Twitter's content moderation policy much more towards free speech. But I don't think that we should sit back and rely and hope that a benevolent, hopefully, billionaire purchases a, a key platform like this and moves it towards free speech. I think we need to have some sort of backstop of a pro-speech guardrails in place for Twitter, for similar social media platforms, and then going beyond even just social media into digital payment platforms. So I I do think that we need a baseline level of non-discrimination rules that are going to apply to large technology companies. And again, I I think it's great that Elon Musk is going to consummate this purchase from a free speech perspective, but I do think we need some baseline protections. And if you step back, I mean, you know, Elon Musk buying Twitter has really sort of exposed this free speech divide in this country of a lot of people on the left that want more censorship for a lot of the reasons that you laid out. You have a lot of people on the right that want more free speech. And it's kind of interesting just to think about this from a a political perspective, how the free speech mantle has really flipped over a relatively short period of time. If you go back to 1972, the modern day op-ed launched on the pages of the New York Times, believe it or not, because the then editor of the New York Times, one of them, John Oakes, wanted to promote a diversity of opinion, wanted views that were very different from the New York Times editors. He said that diversity of opinion is the lifeblood of democracy. The moment we insist that everyone think the same way we do, our democratic way of life is in jeopardy. And, and you flash forward to today, 
And it seems to be that it's more conservatives that are that are carrying that then progressive viewpoint of diversity of speech. And you kind of can look at this as well over a relatively short period of time. Then President Obama, right around the 2012 election, went out to California to Facebook headquarters, actually, and gave a speech right around the 2012 election that said that the free flow of information over the internet is key to a healthy democracy. Flash forward roughly 10 years to 2022. Now, former President Obama went back out to Palo Alto, only a couple miles from that speech. And he said that the free flow of information over the internet is a threat to democracy. So 2012-ish, key to a healthy democracy, 2022, a threat. What happened was smack in the middle there was the election of, of President Trump. And so I, I would go to say that there's people out there that aren't happy with the outcomes at the ballot box, and they're looking to use big tech in censorship as a way of controlling that. And, and I don't think that's a good thing. I think we need robust, free exchange of ideas. There really has been a paradigm shift in my own life. I observe this as well. You know, I always used to associate censoriousness with the right. The groups that would go after Hollywood for putting, you know, movies and television shows out that they didn't like. And, you know, whether it was sexually explicit content, anti-religious content, there was generally that censoriousness. It was always the left and the liberals who were like, let, you know, all the speech run free. And it's it's amazing how in such a short amount of time, you know, 10 years, maybe, maybe 15 years, depending on where you mark that shift, it's been a complete 180. It's truly remarkable how quickly that's happened. And it's part of the kind of the broader realignment of politics that we've seen in this country. So you talked about the need for some protections here, and there's a lot of discussion about what form that takes, right? There's anti-discrimination. There's folks who have said these should be common carriers that are basically like a hotel or an airline. When you show up, they can't say, oh, you're a Republican. Oh, you're a Democrat. I'm not going to let you on the plane or I'm not going to let you rent this hotel room. The Texas law is an example of an attempt to remedy that. And at the time of signing the bill, Texas Governor Abbott said, quote, social media websites have become our modern day public square. They are a place for healthy public debate where information should be able to flow freely. But there is a dangerous movement by social media companies to silence conservative viewpoint ideas. And quote, of course, the big tech companies had a completely different take and a trade group that represents them. NetChoice, their president, Steve Del Bianco, a friend of mine, he said, quote, this bill abandons conservative values violates the First Amendment and forces websites to host obscene, anti-Semitic, racist, hateful, and otherwise awful content, end quote. Are you concerned at all that in our, our meaning, let's say conservatives, quest to have a more free speech-oriented social media ecosystem that we are going to turn these platforms into essentially cesspools? That, you know, if, if these laws take effect, the unfortunate side effect will be that Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube will become just like 8chan or these places on the internet where it's a free-for-all and all sorts of terrible speeches out there, pornography, you name it. Turn these places into cesspools. I don't know if you've been on any of these uh, recently. <laughs> but no, it's kind of ironic to me. You look at some of these technology companies and they say, look, if you do any reform at all to Section 230, if you impose any core non-discrimination obligations on our content moderation, then terrorism content is just going to flourish, which obviously is not the case. But it is ironic to note that you know, as, as we're recording this, Google, YouTube is going to all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to say we get to not be liable for hosting terrorist content because of Section 230. So it's, it's a bit ironic there. Uh, it, look, I think we need core anti-discrimination rules. And a lot of people talk about you know common carriage, public accommodation law. And there's a lot of different sort of ways to think about this. The way I think about it is through the lens of core anti-discrimination. And, and 
I look at common carriage, I look at public accommodation, I look at civil rights laws, and in my view, those are all instances in which we have applied anti-discrimination. So I don't think we need to necessarily say this is a common carriage or it's a place of public accommodation. What we need to say is this is a place, these, these digital town squares, as you mentioned, which actually comes from the Supreme Court, recent Supreme Court case of 2017, Packingham, and say they're so vital right now that we're going to apply some, some non-discrimination. And what's funny to me is you try to have this First Amendment debate, and I actually think it's a very interesting debate. But for a lot of the tech companies, they simply say, well, look, there was a Supreme Court case, Miami Herald versus Tornillo. Florida tried to basically tell a newspaper what editorials they could print or not, and the Supreme Court struck it down. And since then, they've said, well, this is exactly like Miami Herald versus Tornillo. You can't tell us what to host or what not to host. It's an open and shut case, but it's not. There's a lot of different Supreme Court cases out there that deal with whether a private entity has a unregulatable right to not host certain content. And, and there's a range of Supreme Court cases out there. There's a, a shopping center case called Pruneyard, where a shopping center tried to prevent someone from entering to hand out leaflets. The Supreme Court allowed that access to take place over the shopping mall's restrictions. There's a case, Rumsfeld versus Fair, which has to do with military recruitment on college campuses where the college didn't want to allow it. And again, they found a right to do it. So we have a, a range of cases, including some cable cases dealing with FCC regulations, Turner, where you have multiple examples of a private entity that says, I don't want to host this speech or I want carte blanche to decide what speech to host or not. And the Supreme Court, through consideration of a variety of factors, sometimes says yes and sometimes says no. And I think it's a fascinating debate to have, but to simply sort of yell, Miami Herald, you know, we're just like a newspaper case over, which is what big tech has largely been doing successfully for a number of years now. I think that's starting to come to a close. We had this recent Fifth Circuit decision on that Texas social media law that you announced or that you discussed. And I think that's one of the most significant pro-speech court decisions of the modern era. And it seems to me that this case, in combination potentially with the Florida case that's coming out of the 11th Circuit, I would guess is likely to be taken up by the Supreme Court at some point in time here. And it's going to be a truly blockbuster case. And I think it's a very interesting area of law. And to simply say, you know, we're no different than a newspaper, even though there's all these other different cases out there that I think are more analogous to the way these tech companies operate, I don't think it's getting the job done. I think people are worried because some of these courts are starting to say, no, you know, these platforms operate differently than a newspaper and therefore a different outcome may come when it comes to imposing these core non-discrimination rules. Is this necessary, however, right? I mean, everything you said is kind of about court interpretations and First Amendment jurisprudence, et cetera. And, and those you know, cases and, and the Fifth Circuit case will be argued on its merits. But taking a step back, right, what are we, what are we trying to accomplish here? Is it necessary, given the rise of platforms like Rumble, that differentiate themselves from YouTube by being, you know, what they call a bastion for free speech or other apps uh, like President Trump's social media site, Truth Social, right? I mean, is the marketplace, you know, to get back to kind of the libertarian argument, is the marketplace not at least showing signs that there's a demand out there for uncensored speech or free thinking? Substack, for example, is, you know, has so many writers that left newsrooms because they felt that the environment at places like the New York Times was too stifling and they couldn't write about what they wanted to write about and they're now very successful. Do you not see that all as kind of evidence that this will sort itself out? Why intervene now if the marketplace is seeing these developments that are pro-free speech? 
I think competition is important and I think that can be part of the solution. I don't think it's enough. When you look, for instance, at just, you know, a handful of large social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, particularly Twitter, you know, that is, as the court would indicate, you know, the modern day town square. That is where politicians are, academics are, journalists are. And what can and can't be said there isn't just limited to there. I mean, if you go back to the Hunter Biden New York Post laptop story, there was a journalist, I believe it was Jake Sherman, that tweeted about the New York Post story and he was locked out of the account. And they went back on Twitter and said, you know, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. I'm so sorry for having <laughs> tweeted that. I'll never do it again. And you got to think that that also impacted him as a journalist covering that story outside of Twitter. What is allowed to be said there is also, you know, influential outside of it. So there's an issue of how core and central are these platforms to political discourse today. And I would say they're, they're so core and vital that having some edge case competition, while I hope that it continues to flourish, isn't a solution in and of itself. I'd also say as a second point, there's a question of, of censorship across the stack. I mean, obviously, Parler was a competing social media platform that was effectively kneecapped by some of the um, big tech companies by removing it from the app store. You've got cloud services that can turn on or turn off a service. So I think bringing competition is good, but there's limits to it given the the reach that a lot of these social media platforms have in, in the scale. But sure, it could change over time. So again, if you go back to the cable analogy that I talked about in the 1990s, being on cable was viewed as absolutely essential to the economic survival of broadcast television. So Congress stepped in and said, we're going to limit the discretion that a cable company, a private entity, would otherwise have to pick or choose what channels to carry. And that went to the Supreme Court. It was upheld. Now, I happen to think that that Supreme Court case wouldn't necessarily come out the same way today because the market for how you disseminate is so different today than then. But I think the principle continues to apply. Where social media today is in the same position of vitality to communications as cable was in the 90s, I think it says that we need some guardrails. And if we are in a situation 20 years down the road where that's no longer the case, then I think that would undermine the public interest benefits of this First Amendment issue. Yeah. And you raise an interesting point that it may seem like there's plenty of competition at that edge because I can use Rumble, I can use YouTube, I can use Truth Social, et cetera. I think what many consumers may be less aware of is that stack that you've described. And if you can't get you know, it's cloud storage, right? If you can't get cybersecurity protections from a company like Cloudflare, or you're not on the Google Play Store and the Apple App Store, which is an effective duopoly for cell phone apps, it could be very difficult for your company to succeed. So even if in theory you think I'm going to start a company that is a you know a content moderation free for all, you may be banned from those apps for the exact fact that you are pro free speech. Ironically, now setting aside all of these other arguments, I'm curious. If you think that the government's involvement and their communication with social media companies changes this debate at all or reinforces certain points, we've now seen quite a bit of evidence that social media companies have been communicating with the federal government about what they view as harmful speech, you know, misinformation, which of course is in the eye of the beholder often, or disinformation, foreign attempts to, you know, troll farms from Russia, China, Iran, et cetera. And of course, COVID was a major flashpoint in this discussion. And we have examples of this that are out in the open and some that are more behind the scenes. For an out in the open example, you know, in July of 2021, then White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, she was talking about social media users who spread misinformation about COVID-19. And she said, quote, you shouldn't be banned from one platform and not others. 
for providing misinformation out there, end quote. That raises some questions about competition, right? If, if she's basically saying that platforms can't have different policies about who's allowed on the platform, what is the purpose of having competition? About a year later, in July of 2022, a Freedom of Information Act request from America First Legal revealed emails between the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, and representatives at Google, Facebook, and Twitter. In your mind, is this communication alone evidence of collusion between the federal government and social media companies? And does that have First Amendment implications, right? Because one of the arguments from big tech is we are private companies, we can do what we want, or at least their allies are saying that. But are they private companies if they're talking to the federal government? Yeah, this is really concerning area. And you're right, it's, it's sort of a totally separate way potentially of getting to the same point. Even putting this issue to the side, I think that there's a very good argument that consistent with you know Turner and other Supreme Court cases, we can impose some common sense regulations here consistent with the First Amendment rights of platforms. This opens up an entirely separate avenue, which is there's a different line of First Amendment cases that says where there is sufficient coordination between the government and a private actor, then the First Amendment itself applies as a restraint to the private entity. And, and jawboning is a, is a concept that actually comes up in these cases. And there was a, a billboard case where a private entity contracted with another private entity to put up a billboard and the government didn't like the message that was being displayed. So the government went to the entity that put it up and said, take it down. And they did. And the person that wanted it up there was able to have a legal action based on that private entity violating their First Amendment rights. So where there is, and the evidence shows, that there is sufficient level of coordination between the government and big tech when it comes to censoring viewpoints, then that does give rise to an independent basis for stepping in. I do think there's some interest in Congress at trying to get to the bottom of this communications between the White House, the FDA, and these technology companies. Now, this may be shocking and upsetting to hear, but many have criticized you for the views that you are sharing on this podcast. It's I'll, a day that ends in why. It happens. I, I might, I might need, do I need to give you a moment to, <laughs> to, to, to digest this and, and emotionally ready yourself for the next question? Yeah. But since you brought up Section 230, and I barely even put it in the notes, and I feel like that's just another day in tech policy where you don't have to put Section 230 in the notes for the show for someone to bring it up. Similarly, net neutrality. So way back in the day when I was working for you and prior to that, there was this big debate about free speech on the internet. And instead of the focus being on Google, Facebook, YouTube, et cetera, it was on the last mile internet service provider, Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, et cetera. And the idea was these companies would abuse that position between the internet you know, writ large and the end user and, and censor content or discriminate and curate the user experience in order to extract extra revenue, right? We we all heard the parade of horribles that, spoiler alert, none of them happened, but that was a discussion. And the solution that was put forward by the Democrats and the left and big tech companies, small tech companies that are now much bigger like Etsy, they all said, make ISPs common carriers and that will solve the problem because then free speech will flourish on the internet. Now, you opposed those regulations. I obviously opposed them. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have hired me. So full disclosure. But you opposed common carriage in that instance because you said it would stifle investment. It would stifle innovation. It was this you know, morass of regulations that would harm the ecosystem. Some have said that you're basically being hypocritical in this case now with social media because you're calling for either common carriage or common carriage-esque regulations like public accommodation, anti-discrimination on social media. 
How do you square that circle where you think it's inappropriate in one layer of the internet stack, but it's it's appropriate for this other layer of social media? Well, the net neutrality debate is is so interesting because it's it's a term that people impart a lot of different meaning to. I think it's important to break out three different concepts here. One is common carriage. The second is Title II of the Communications Act. And the third is net neutrality. And for a long time, all three of those concepts were kind of squished pancake style together under the rubric of net neutrality, but they're very different. So what the FCC did was it reclassified the internet under Title II of the Communications Act, which Title II is about a lot of things, including price controls. And then it used the reclassification of Title II as a justification to impose net neutrality rules. And when it comes to the actual net neutrality rules, no blocking, no throttling, bright line rules like that, there's really not a lot of controversy. I support that. The, the problem is the way the FCC did it was apply Title II, which is effectively a way of getting to rate regulation and price controls, which I think is a mistake to the internet. If someone wants to, to, to come forward with a pure net neutrality rule for the internet, that doesn't give me heartburn. And I think in particular, when we're talking about it today, I think the debate has to be concern is about discrimination against digital bits. You need to look at where in the internet ecosystem that discrimination is taking place. And it's not the ISP. It is further up the stack. It is you know the technology companies. It is the cloud service providers, the app stores. And so I'm very open to neutrality rules being applied across the stack, whether it's to ISPs or edge providers. I don't think that price controls make sense for the internet. And that was a big portion of my pushback on Title II. And again, when it comes to the edge providers, I'm not saying it's it's necessary that we impose Title II or common carriage. In my view, it's let's take some sort of core non-discrimination rules and apply it there. And again, regulation also should be commensurate with the harm you're addressing. And in the ISP context, there simply was not widespread harms that would justify the types of intrusive Title II that were at issue then. But if you look at big tech in the last couple of years, the examples are legion of discrimination, of, of silencing of voices that I think is providing the regulatory predicate for some pro-speech guardrails to be put in place. Google it. The term is full stack neutrality. You'll see a bunch of people talking about it, basically saying we should have a holistic approach and we shouldn't be segmenting out these, these different layers of the stack if the goal is, of course, consumer protection. Now, I want to, you know, look ahead to the future a little bit and see how these debates may play out. You have this irony of all these organizations back in the day saying we need net neutrality, we need regulation on ISPs to protect free speech. So many of those organizations are now the loudest cheerleaders for internet censorship you could possibly imagine, right? I'm talking about your fight for the future, your free press, these you know, kind of Orwellian named organizations to quote hmm. the former chairman of the FCC, Ajit Pai, right? They were saying, let everything roam free on a, at the ISP layer. But when it comes to social media, we need to censor even more. Is there a world in which they will actually change their view on ISP net neutrality because there are certain people in society that are so bad that they should have their internet connection cut off? Is there a world in which you know, Democrats take control of the FCC fully again, they reimpose net neutrality, but then they start making exceptions, right? They say, actually, we're allowing ISPs to censor misinformation, or we're going to declare a public health emergency and censor certain information. Do you see a world in which there's just not enough censorship happening in the cloud layer, in the app store layer, in the social media layer, 
and they start turning their focus on the actual ISPs themselves. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, look, to, to your point, some of the loudest voices in favor of big tech companies having a First Amendment right beyond the touch of any regulation to censor are some of the same voices that are out there saying that corporations have zero First Amendment rights. <laughs> uh, so it's sort of an I- ironic position that they find themselves in at that point. In terms of the future, look, I, I think it's interesting because right now, conservatives, Republicans and Democrats are really pulling on opposite ends of the same thread. You know, Republicans want more speech. Democrats, in my view, want want more censorship, what they would call you know, going after hate speech and things like that. So getting to a bipartisan consensus here is going to be difficult. I, I do think there's some core points we have to do. One is transparency, and maybe we can find some core common ground there across the political aisle. We need more transparency. I mean, big tech right now is a total black box. Why does stuff stay up? Why does it stay down? The appeal process is completely you know, vague. Why do you lose followers? Why do you gain followers? I think there's a lot we can do in transparency. I think there's you know some basic points of accountability that we need. I think we need non-discrimination. We need Section 230 reform. To me, that's necessary, but not sufficient. And we also need user empowerment. I mean, if you look back at Section 230, one of the things it talks about is providing incentives for big tech to provide tools to individual users to make their own decisions. And we've sort of lost the thread on that. We've come to this entirely centralized approach to censorship, which is the companies themselves are going to decide algorithmically or otherwise what you get to see. Why not put that power back in the hands of users? If you want MSNBC to filter your feed, then get a plug-in and check that box. If you want Fox News to filter your feed, check that box. I think if we can get to that point as a future, put it back in the hands of people, then we're good to go. Because right now, the issue is not necessarily, I don't want to listen to this speech that I disagree with. It's worse than that. It's, I don't want that speech to exist. I don't want anybody to be able to choose to decide to hear an idea that I disagree with. And that's a pretty extremist position. And so I think if we can find some homework, some, some common ground around user empowerment, we'd be in a much better position. Well, there you have it, folks. The reason Brendan Carr is so hot to trot on social media is that he has been losing followers. So <laughs> a message to all the pro-big tech libertarians out there, if you just can help my boy Brendan here get some more followers, he'll drop this whole charade. I will I will say, I will say that the, the, the version of Twitter where people complain about losing followers is one of the, the least interesting uh, <laughs> discussions I see on Twitter. And of course, you know, we lose, we gain, whatever. You're cool uh, with that being censored then. Any any yes, discussion of follower yes, counts, right, get rid of that. Right. Yeah. Follower count complaints should go by the wayside. But I do think a lot of that would go away if they would just say, okay, here's a transparency report. You lost these 500 followers this week. We stripped them from you because we found they were bots. Most of these people decide to unclick because your content is terrible. I mean, if we could just put like, that type of, uh, of transparency out there would go a long way because right now, without saying to people why it's happening, they are putting their own thoughts as to why it's taking place. Last question. This is a bit ex- existential, so feel free to completely sidestep it. But I was reading some of the texts between Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey <laughs> that came out of the discovery in, in the whole you know lawsuits back and forth about whether he gets to buy Twitter, et cetera, and under what terms. And one that is particularly fascinating was a conversation about whether it was a mistake to make Twitter a company in the first place. And the discussion between the two essentially centered around this issue of there's always these choke points right over these companies. And one of them we discussed already is that there would be regulators in the federal government are flagging users and saying, we want these people taken down, or we highly suggest that you take them down. Another is advertising. A lot of the folks who are who don't want to regulate these companies say, look, these, these are public companies, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their advertisers to make it hospitable to advertising. So of course they have to remove Hunter Biden's laptop, which you know is quite a leap. And given you know, 
your point earlier, there are already cesspools. That's a dubious argument at best, in my opinion. But then there's also the question of if you many countries, if you operate in that country, they require you to have a physical presence there. So a lot of there's these data localization laws where these social media companies have to store servers and at least have some employees. And that's a potential choke point in an authoritarian regime or even in the European Union, which is much more regulatory than the U.S. Is there a world in which free speech can exist online where there are advertisers, where there are governments that can impose you know, regulations and jawbone these companies, is it even possible? Because Elon and Jack are talking about maybe this should just be a protocol, right? Like email or texting, like it, it just can't be a company. Do you share that potential pessimism or do you think there's a right cocktail of of rules and court rulings that can get us to a place where we can have public companies that are traded on, you know, on the NASDAQ that are not, you know, subject to the the, the pressure of advertisers and governments in a way that limits free speech. Look, there's a point in time in which the executives for these companies would come out and say, we represent the free speech wing of the free speech party. When that changed, they made it very clear to people that working the refs works. And when you all of a sudden become a political actor, when politicians view you as being susceptible to pressure, when activists say, I can go to your advertiser and pressure you, once you start down that slippery slope, it's a very difficult situation. So I would say there are companies, even tech companies today, that are very clear. You're here to work. You're here to make money. You know This business is not going to be a place for political activity. God bless you. Do it on your own time. And if you can hold that line, then I think you become less susceptible to the working of the refs. But Twitter, a, a couple of years ago, I think, you know, made very clear that they were susceptible to pressure. And so I think signaling openness to pressure is what these companies did. And I think that was a mistake. There are tech companies out there that have said, you know, we're here to do our core mission and that's it. But again, I think, you know, whether it's algorithms, whether it is user empowerment, putting the decisions back in the hands of individual users, I think that might be the path out of here. So how do people find you? We've come to the end of the show. This is the natural place in any podcast where people plug all the wonderful things that they're doing. You're big on TikTok, right? What's your TikTok? <laughs> Millions of followers. Yeah, I'm not on TikTok. Uh, I am on Twitter, uh, Brendan Carr FCC. I'm on a couple other socials, Instagram. If you want to see some interesting tower climbing uh, photos, <laughs> yes. I kind of uh, populate the content there as well. Excellent. Well, uh, speaking of big tech, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, all the various monopolies. Uh, hopefully they will not remove us for, for daring to criticize the, their moderation practices. This has been The Dynamist. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.